Amen. That's a good song. Um, <laughs> it, uh, it kind of reminds me that um, this is what we're always after, what we're always trying to accomplish um, in ministry and, and through everything that we do in worship and teaching and all the rest of it is just to help everyone to understand their need for Christ and to uh, claim that for themselves and walk in that and to be reassured in that. And um, it, it's such a, an important issue um, that, you know, as a young pastor, um, I, I had this idealism. And, and I think that it's important that young pastors do have a certain amount of idealism. <laughs> Um, because you think that, okay, the, the thing that is going to change everybody's life, the things that, that will, you know, put them on a, a path towards joy and hope and reassurance and peace is, you know, their relationship with the Lord. And, and everything that we want to do is just to get people on that same page. And um, over the years, you know, I was just thinking about how in this church, you know, I've been here long enough now, uh, 16 years almost, um, I've seen probably as many people come and go as are actually in this church. Um, if you think about all the people that have been in this church and are no longer in this church, it probably is more, if not much more, than the people that have come and stayed. And um, over, over the course of time, as you have this, and it's not to say that all those people that have left have, you know, left the faith or have left their walk with the Lord. They, they may have gone to other churches or um, are continuing on somewhere else, and, and uh, we're, we're okay with that. Um, but there have been people that have come and gone who uh, never really established their life in Christ, and it hurts. Every time that you see that happen, it just, it kind of hurts your heart, and you you don't know what to do different, how to get people to get, you know, get it. You want them to get it every every time, every time you preach, every time you teach, every time you have a worship service. Um, and so part of, you know, this, this confession of mine, um, why... I don't use notes, you know, is not necessarily um, because it wouldn't help me. <laughs> um, but a lot of it is that when I am preaching, I want to preach, you know, just this, just, just the Word of God. But I also want to preach it from the heart um, so that there's nothing fake about it. Um, and some people like that. Some people don't like that. Some people are, you know, kind of put off by it. They'd rather have a you know podium and just reading some some of my notes and you know, kind of almost distance yourself because what what this tends to be is very personal because it's very personal to me. Um, and so what happens over time is that there there is a disillusionment that can occur, that everything that we're doing, you know, is, is highly expected. 
We, we expect there to be a great response. We expect every week that the, the altar is going to be full of people and that people are going to leave changed and that you know, there will be a, an impact. And um, if you don't have that or if you feel like it's not making the kind of difference that you wish it would or you think it should, then there tends to be a, uh, a degree within my heart, okay, in my own heart, of uh, callousness begins to happen, um, almost to the extent of, you know, I, I'm trying to protect myself from being hurt, from disappointment, disappointment in my own effectiveness or disappointment in your response to what is being taught and, and proclaimed and, and hopefully lived um, by you know, the people that are up front and the people that are invested in ministry and, and every level. And so what's going on a lot of times is that on one hand, theologically, you know, biblically speaking, we believe in the inherent value of every single human being. We believe that without exception, every person is infinitely and deeply loved by God. And they have something within them based on two things in, in particular. One is um, the Imago Dei. Okay? The Imago Dei means made in God's image. That when God formed man and woman, when he formed humanity, he made us in his image. And so he, he put something about himself into us that is unique and different from all the other animals, and all, all the rest of creation. So there's a value there that God has instilled in creation, in the creation of human beings that we believe and understand mentally that this is, this is true, this is right, this is accurate. People are valuable according to what God has said. And then on the other side of that whole spectrum is what Jesus did for us on the cross. So there's no doubt that God has declared that every human being is infinitely valuable, not just based on their creation, but based on his sacrifice. That if you have a question about how much God loves you, then he solved that, or he proved it, or he told us how much he loves us because of what he was willing to do for us on the cross, that he gave his only begotten son. If you have a child, okay, anybody who has ever had a child in their home, even if it's an adopted child or, or one that uh, you uh, bore yourself, um, taken care of for somebody else, you understand the weight of what it means to say, you are worth this child to me. And for God to say that about each and every one of us, that he loves us that much, that he would die for us, that he would send his only begotten son to die for us, to, to live a perfect life, to, to die a, a brutal, horrific, sacrificial death on your behalf to pay for the sin that you committed and he didn't. And he says, this is, this is how valuable you are. And so, okay, what I'm trying to help us to understand is no matter who you are, this is what God thinks of you. And I believe that. I believe that. Do you believe that? And I believe it without exception, without, without question, I believe that about every single human being. 
But there's another side of the, the spectrum of this, this value, okay? And so the value that it should create is love. I, I love people according to what God has said about them. But that's mental, okay? It's the mental belief. I believe this about people, and I hold to it. Um, I'm convicted about that. But what I tend to personally, and I think maybe I'm not alone in this, protect myself from is the feeling of that love, of the caring about the individual person. I know your value. I know that that I believe it and, and that it is true and that it is biblically proven and there's no doubt about it according to who God is. But I reserve myself, and over time, I think this, is, this has happened, um, because of disappointment, because of a sense of loss or a sense of failure or whatever the case may be, that I begin to protect myself from actually caring about the individual person because of the possibility, and the very real possibility, that, that I might become disappointed about where they are in their walk with the Lord, where they are in their sin, where they are in their choices that they make, and whether or not they may continue or leave, whether they may accept or reject. And that, I'm just saying that over the course of the last few weeks, um, God has been convicting me that it's not enough to know it or to believe it. There has to be a feeling or a heart response or a connection between the head and the heart. Now, let me say this real quick. I, probably because of ministry, and this is such a weird, you know, I don't know, enigma, because of ministry, I've tended to default to the head side you'd think you'd default to the other side. And some people do. They default to the heart side. And uh, they care about people. They love people without any discernment about their choices. And it becomes a wild, um, unreserved acceptance without any concern for the consequences of our bad choices. So both are dangerous places to be. Would you agree? And what I believe this uh, love ethic, okay, the discipleship is love um, teaching is all about is reconnecting the head and the heart to make sure that they're functioning together so that we, we do understand the intrinsic value of people and we also care about them personally. Um, and by doing that, somehow we are able mysteriously to embody the reality of God to other people. That, that's profoundly shocking to me because I feel like and I think that for a lot of Christians we are not doing a really good job of that. We're pretty good at the head side or the heart side, and we've been historically pretty bad at getting it right together. So let's look at what the Word says about 
this issue. Okay, if we can, let's, let's open up John 13, starting in verse 34. And just a couple verses here. Let's stand as we read God's word. John 13, 34, 35. Jesus is speaking here. <clears throat> says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example, for the price that you paid to make it possible to secure people for yourself, Lord, and put us on a path of, of uh, eternal life, wrestling with your truth and uh, owning it, uh, committing it to our hearts, living it, failing and, and being restored over and over and over. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would grow in that. Help us to claim this truth, understand it deeply, to own it personally, to, to live it powerfully. Um, and Lord, we do pray that you would use that to reach people for you, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. New commandment, he says, um, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Um, that was not ambiguous, okay? That was not like this thing where, you know, they were have to go through the last three years and, oh, how did Jesus love us? Uh, you know, it was um, very specific to what had occurred that night, okay? That, that night was the night of the Last Supper, and it was um, a time when Jesus had gathered his disciples to reinforce all of his teaching, to get them ready for his imminent departure. He's going to die, okay? That night he's going to be arrested. Um, before the rooster crows, Peter's going to deny him three times. He's going to be in chains, and he's going to be on a path to the cross. The disciples are going to be scattered and um, probably pretty confused and probably pretty upset about what's going on. Um, and so he gives them that night a very significant uh, example of how they are to live as disciples um, very significantly. Okay, so here's what he, he does. He gathers them around and he does for them what the lowliest servant would have been expected to do. He strips down um, and then he puts on a towel. And then he gets on his hands and knees with some water, and he begins to wash each and every one of their feet. You just imagine, you know, the Lord getting on his hands and knees, taking off your filthy sandals, washing your feet with water, drying them with a towel. Um, you, it's just so beyond the uh, conception of what a master, he's the rabbi, he's the Lord. In fact, they call him master and Lord. This is how they refer to him. He, he actually says in one place, you call me master and Lord, rightly so. That is what I am. But if you want to know what it means to be master and Lord, here's the example that I want to give you. You serve people. And so he gets down on his hands and knees. He washes their feet. Peter says, Lord, you can't wash my feet. It was so bizarre 
and unusual and shocking that he would do this. Peter says, you can't wash my feet. You're the Lord. I'm, I should be washing your feet. Notice Peter didn't actually get down and start washing people's feet. <laughs> he didn't quite get it yet, but he got at least this idea. There's something about this doesn't seem right. And uh, Jesus says, but if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. So he says, okay, well, wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head. Let's, I want to be all in. And uh, Jesus, he says something interesting. He says that the word has already made you clean, but I'm washing your feet. And this is something different. This is, this is an example that I'm giving you to show you that you'll never forget about what it means to love people. How to put others first. No matter how important you become, no matter how wealthy you become, no matter how many degrees you get, no matter how many people like you on Twitter or Facebook or however that stuff works, it doesn't matter how highly you think of yourself. In fact, here's the problem. No matter where you are in your life, you tend to think of yourself pretty highly. And we have to wrestle that thought down and think of other people as highly as we think of ourselves. And so what does Jesus tell us about love? He says, as you love others as you love yourself. Here's, a, here's just a good rule of thumb. Just love people the way that you love yourself. And you probably won't go too far off. Our problem is that we want to be loved so badly that all of our attention and all of our energy and effort seems to go into being loved and being accepted and will somebody care for me and how come they are treating me this way and how come they're disrespecting me and, and we're angry about the way that people think about us and treat us and talk to us and and the solution that God gives us in his word is two things. One, remember how much you are loved by God. I, I think we forget. I, I don't know that we forget, or maybe we just can't conceive of this idea, how much we are loved by God. If God loves me enough to create me, and God loves me enough to die for me, then isn't that enough? Why, why am I so desperate for people to think highly of me or, or to accept me or encourage me or to appreciate me or whatever else may happen in, in my heart? Why is that such a huge need when I know that the God of the universe created me, loves me, died for me, and he wants a personal relationship with me and I can have it? So I, I remember that first and foremost, and I keep reminding myself of that constantly. I am loved by God. But then he says, if you're going to be in God and you're going to walk in a relationship with God, then the next thing is that you need to love others as much or even somehow more than you love yourself. You want to be great in the kingdom? That's fine. That's fine. You, you can actually have that, that uh, idea that you want to be great in the kingdom. He says, you want to be great in the kingdom? Be a servant. You want to be the greatest in the kingdom? Be the servant of all. That's 
That's what's going to propel you into greatness in God's eyes. And probably other people's eyes too. It's unlikely that you would commit yourself to serving people, loving people in such a sacrificial way, serving them to this degree that other people would then treat you like a, a doormat? They might. But it's likely that they would honor you in response to this strange way that you interact within the world. Because why? Most people aren't doing that. It's unique. So, what we know, what we understand is that he's given us this command. He modeled it, which means that our concept of love is defined by who God is. Our concept of any true ethic or actual moral or um, true reality is based on who God is. It starts with him, and then we go from there into life. And so he models it, he shows us, and then he says, okay, why don't you just try to act like me, imitate me, do what I do. He says over in uh, John 14, um, verse uh, 13. No, John 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the greatest love that there is. This is the greatest love that there can be. And Jesus, he says, I'm not just going to tell you that you should be sacrificial. He says, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. And this is going to be the model of how to love people. So, let me take a step back from that um, theologically, okay, if we can do that for just a second and think about this, what that means. Sin separates us from God. We agree to that? When God saw the state of man, now obviously, okay, he, he always knew, but when he sees the state of man, and he understands in his concept of spiritual reality that there's nothing that you can do to reconnect with God on your own. You can't achieve it in your effort. You can't achieve it in your behavior. You can't achieve it through anything that you could possibly do. You can't buy it. You can't be good enough. You're, you're a sinful human being in your nature and you're sinful in your behavior. He says his response is to sacrifice himself in order to pay the price in order to usher you into a relationship with himself. Okay? Basic, consistent, biblical teaching about salvation, redemption. Agreed? What that means is that there is such a thing as sin. The world, the culture that we're in right now, says there is no such thing as sin. We don't, we don't have the terminology of sin in our culture anymore. We don't talk about that. 
So the world's response, and this is how Satan loves to just mess things up. He has somehow guided, directed, deceived, manipulated our culture, and I'm talking about our culture, okay? I know there are many cultures around the world, but our culture in particular, into this belief that the only thing that is immoral is making somebody feel bad. That's the line that Satan would love to draw in our culture. You make somebody feel bad, that's wrong. So that means within the church, as we talk about what is true, what is right, what is godly, what is righteous, what is God's will for man, how do we live in a, in a right way with God, how do we understand right and wrong, okay, all of that, we can't talk about those things without offending people. So we're hurting people's feelings. So ultimately what, what Satan has been able to achieve in our culture is that Christianity is bad. The church is bad. Christians are bad because we hold to a biblical standard of right and wrong. And that makes people feel bad. And then we tell people on top of that, no matter how hard you try, you can never achieve it on your own. Well, that just makes people feel worse, right? Because it's the bad news that gets you to the good news. So on one hand, we have the world saying there is no such thing as sin. All we have is this one line. Morality is total acceptance. Total acceptance. Absolute acceptance. Unqualified acceptance. Unmerited acceptance. Everything is just accept and, and celebrate and boost and encourage and prop up and let's make people feel good. The only immoral thing is making people feel bad. And on the other side, you have Christians who say, the truth of God's word is that there is such a thing as sin, that sin separates you from God, and we need to declare that in order to help people to come to know God so that they can actually have a right relationship with him and finally, fundamentally feel better because I have confidence that I know where I'm going to go when I die. The uh, Christian message is that we are free from sin. You ever heard that before? Free from sin. You feel like you're free from sin? Everybody raise your hand if you feel like you are free from sin. And there's no hands. Let me tell you what freedom from sin actually is. See, the world doesn't understand this. And what is um, unfortunate is that most of the church doesn't understand it either. Freedom from sin means three things. Number one, I have the word of God. This is the truth of who God is, and this is the truth of what God wants for me. This is, this is the reality of how to live your life in the world and not be worldly. The Holy Spirit, when I receive Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within me and gives me the ability the power to read the Word of God and get something out of it, to understand it, to 
actually let it sink into my heart and for it to make a difference in how I think and, and understand things. So I'm free from sin in the first regard because I know what sin is. And I'm able, to a degree, to sin less because I recognize it for what it is. Why that's different is because the world doesn't know what sin is. It's deceived. So when you don't understand that something is wrong, then you just keep doing it. And you don't understand why it makes you feel bad. It's, it feels good at first, but ultimately there are all these consequences and all these devastating, destructive things that occur because of these things. But because of the lie of, of the enemy, there's no ability to come to a different conclusion. So we, we don't need to be angry at people who don't know the truth. Um, it, we need to speak the truth. But as a believer, I know the Word of God, and I have the power of the Holy Spirit to understand it, and so I know what sin is. I can call it out, and I can avoid it. Not perfectly, but increasingly. Okay? So I'm free from sin there. Secondly, now all this hinges on whether or not you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have to understand that. Um, but secondly, I'm free from sin because sin separates you from God. When I re recognize what sin is because I know what God's Word says, then as soon as I recognize that something I'm doing, saying, thinking, behaving, whatever it is, whatever sin issues come to my, my mind and God reveals it, this is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Okay? He makes me feel guilty about bad things that I've done that His Word tells me about. Immediately, I'm free from sin because I can confess those things to God and be forgiven and be restored into a right relationship with God immediately, instantly. No matter where I am, no matter who I'm with, no matter what I'm doing, as soon as I recognize something is sinful, I confess it to the Lord. I say, God, I'm sorry for that. The blood of Jesus is powerful and effective. It's done its work. And so he says, I will forgive you if you will confess your sin. If you will just agree with me about that thing being wrong, then I will forgive you. And what that does is brings us into close proximity with the Lord. I'm free from sin, secondly, because it does not separate me from the Lord in my daily, everyday, active life. I have freedom. I'm not free to sin. I'm free from it. Thirdly, this is what we all love, is that I will not be condemned eternally for my sin. When I go to heaven, someday, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, you're going to die. When you die, and you die in Christ, your sin is not counted against you. You're welcomed immediately into the presence of the Lord without any other qualification other than Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay? Now, here's the thing. We love aspect number three. Love it. I, I want to I claim it. I want to profess it. I want to believe it. I want to live this way that when I die, I get to go to heaven. As a Christian, the other two are probably much more important to how I live my life than number three. I mean, number three is like, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to the day I get to go to heaven. But the other two are how I get to actually have peace in the world today. And I think a lot of 
Christians are living on number three and basically ignoring one and two. Remember what one and two were? I sin less because I know what sin is, and I have a path to a right relationship with God consistently and immediately because of grace. If you're not doing one and two, then number three is just like a retirement plan that you, you're hoping that will accumulate someday so that you can uh, cash in. When it might be like exciting to think about, oh, look at all this I'm going to have when I retire. But what does it do for paying the bills today? You see what I'm saying? And so, the love ethic is that <laughs> there's something really profound about how God operates with you and me. He says, all these things are true for you, and they're available to you in Christ, and I have made them available to everyone that you know. And now it is your job, if you're in Christ, to live in such a way that they can see it, they can hear it, they can have evidence of it, so that they can, at some point, receive it for themselves. First thing that has to happen is that I have to claim it for myself. I am loved by God, I'm forgiven by God, I'm walking in a, in a way I hope is um, more and more godly, and I have a hope of eternal life, and all those things are playing out in my day-to-day -day life, but I'm also living in such a way that I'm thinking about other people. Because here's the, the toxicity of Christianity that a lot of people experience, it never gets past what it has done for me. It's always about what it's doing for me. And I'm studying more, and I'm praying more, and I'm spending more time with the Lord for myself, and I'm, I'm digging in for my own maturity, but that maturity, if it, doesn't, if it doesn't get displayed to other people, then it is a stagnant pool of knowledge that does you very little good. Do we need to learn things? Of course we do. Do we need to grow in our knowledge? Of course we do. Do we need to excel in, in our understanding? Of course we do. But it, if it doesn't transfer over into how I'm then treating the people around me, the story of the Good Samaritan, what was that about? You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about that, Seth talked about it, I, I recapped it again the week later. What was that about? Who's your neighbor? Anybody in need? Who's your neighbor? Anybody who's in your proximity? Guess what? The, the moral of the story was that your neighbor is everyone. Your neighbor is everyone, and how you treat them matters. Jesus goes a step far beyond that, and he says, love your enemy as, your, as yourself. You've heard, hate your enemies. He says that. You've heard. People have taught Hate your enemies. Love your neighbor. Love your brother. He says, love your enemy. So there's nobody who is excluded from the love that a Christian is supposed to show. We display the love of Christ. Now, we do it in two different ways, okay? Number one, we have to 
and I'm saying have to, uh, let people know that sin separates them from God. Love is not radical acceptance of every behavior, okay? We care about people in spite of their behavior, but we don't accept that all behavior is equally good. So we declare the truth, and so the Bible says that we speak the truth in love, right? This is where the church is becoming, and, and biblical churches, uh, churches that speak the truth of God's Word, are going to become more and more and more um, rare, unique, and um, controversial in our culture. Because we hold to the, the truth of Scripture, and we never paint a different line than what Scripture paints, okay? This is the truth. This is God's standard. This is what God wants for you. This is, this is how we live the Christian life, and, and we're going to talk more in detail about that in the weeks coming. But these are Christian morals. This is God's will for, for people, how they live. The culture's line just keeps getting pushed further and further and further away into what we would call immorality. They don't know that it's immorality because to them, the line is always shifting. The definition is always changing. But we're going to continue to come back to the truth of, of God's word and declare it without apology. Now, as we do that, there's another thing that we have to do, which is to care for people in the midst of a growing understanding of God's will in their life. And I think perhaps um, some of the loss that we've had and people walking away from the church over the years is because they come and they hear a message about Christian morals, right? How to live the Christian life, how to be a godly person, how to live in a right way with the Lord. And they have not stayed long enough to understand that that is that is the result of coming to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not how you get saved. It's the result of being saved. And so we tend to, and I say we, and probably me mostly, to condemn sin prematurely. Sin is sin. Sin is wrong. Sin is destructive. Sin is deadly. Sin separates you from God. But God does not condemn sin until the end. You know that? We, sin has its own built-in consequences. God doesn't have to strike you with lightning when you do the wrong thing. Even though he could technically do that, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He says, there's coming a time when we're all going to stand before the judgment seat and we're going to give an account. Until then... I'm going to invite you into a relationship with, with myself. I'm speaking as if I were God, okay? Constantly warning, constantly inviting, constantly sharing the, the message of grace. There is sin. It does separate you from God. Here's the solution. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And as you come into that relationship, you grow in that grace and you grow in that knowledge and some people, they've heard the, the message of right and wrong, moral teaching, and they say, well, I don't qualify, so I'm out. 
And it's a shame because something should have happened to prevent them from walking out the door, I think. I think Christian people should have embodied the love and the nature of Jesus to such a degree that even though people felt guilty, they, they knew that they were in a place where they were loved. And my concern for myself primarily and for us as a church secondarily is that, that we would somehow miss that. That we're going to call sin, sin, we're going to call it out for what it is, but but we will not condemn somebody before the time. It's not our job to condemn. We don't need to do that. God doesn't call us to do that. In fact, Jesus even modeled that. What does he do? (laughs) I'll just finish with this. On that night, he washed the disciples' feet, 12 of them. Who was there? Judas. He washed his feet. He knew he was going to betray him. He knew that Satan was going to enter into him. That happens later. He he had warned Judas. He had told Judas over and over. And Judas wasn't going to believe in Jesus for whatever reason. Judas wasn't going to put his faith in Jesus. Judas was not going to accept Jesus as Lord And Jesus does not condemn him. He washes his feet. He serves him. Even that did not turn Judas' heart back to the Lord. But he didn't condemn him. Judas was condemned by his own sin, and then he died, and then he faces judgment. And here's us in the middle of a culture that is quickly going really almost literally to hell in a handbasket. Here's the truth of God's word. It doesn't change. But God still loves you. And he's inviting you to know him. And we love you too. Amen. Father, help us. We need you, Lord. It is not an easy task. <laughs> Your word tells us over and over and over the, the new command is to love. And we want to do that, Lord. For some, it is a change of heart. We need to find somehow, um, be changed in our demeanor and our attitude towards people. We need to begin to care for them be kind to them, be compassionate towards them. Lord, others um, find it easy to, to have that care and compassion, but they don't know the truth, and they, they're willing to accept bad behavior. And somehow, Lord, we need to come to the, together on these things and understand that uh, your word doesn't change, that who you are doesn't change, that sin always separates us from you. Lord, but that we have grace. And we thank you for grace. We thank you for that grace that not only we've received, but that as we have received it, we can also give it. And Lord, I'm, I'm just going to lift up right now. There are people in this room who need to forgive somebody. 
who've been hurt, who've been disappointed, who've had an expectation that's been crushed. And they need to, in their heart, in their mind right now, release that person and forgive them for whatever pain they have caused. And I pray that they, Lord, would find a rush of peace from your Holy Spirit, Lord, as they do that. Some people right now are tormented in their heart because they don't know what to do with a friend or a loved one, a coworker, a child who's choosing wickedness, destroying their own life and their own mentality, and they don't know what to do with that. They want to love them, but they are afraid that loving them means condoning their sin. Lord, I pray that you would give them wisdom to understand how to speak the truth in love, be compassionate, to point to Jesus, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, Lord, in their life. Start with us. Help us to model the love that you showed us so that the world would see it. And we will give you all the praise as we continue to strive for that, struggle for that, try the best we can to imitate you according to your revelation, according to your will in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to just invite you this morning. There are so many different things that you may need to respond to this morning. I want to invite you to respond to the Lord. If he's calling your name to receive him as your Lord and Savior for the first time, please don't hesitate uh, um, to do that. He he loves you. He wants you. Um, For those who are just struggling with the forgiveness or a situation that is just painful, uh, you may just want to come and lay that down and say, God, I, I don't know what to do with this, but I'm praying for your guidance in that. Amen? Let's stand and sing.